0: from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, "'Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. "'You aren't swayed by men "'because you pay no attention to who they are, "'but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. "'Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? "'Should we pay or shouldn't we?' "'But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. "'Why are you trying to trap me?' He asked, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children... The man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. there is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and from then on, No one dared ask him any more questions.
1: Well, thank you so much for tuning in to join us this morning. Um, I'm just going to give you a moment. You may not have a Bible open or switched on in front of you. And you are going to need that as we look at this passage today. So I'm going to give you a moment to do that. Switch on. The Bible on your phone, or uh, look for one around your house and open it up at Mark 12. Or you might need to pass something to your children to keep them occupied, colouring or snacks. Last week I got told off for telling people to throw Lego at their children. Um, Sometimes that's an appropriate thing to do, but maybe not right at this moment. While you're doing that, passing, not throwing things to your children, just want to give you a little insight in case you haven't been following. Uh, where we're up to at the moment, we're doing this series called Recaptivated. We're looking at the biography of Jesus called Mark's Gospel, and we are looking at that together over this time, uh, in the hope that if we're a Christian, our hearts will be warmed again to Jesus, will be recaptivated by Him. And if you're new to this, you're just thinking about it all, that you will begin to see why we think Jesus is the most captivating person who's ever lived in history. So. That's what we're doing. Hopefully you've had time to find a Bible, settle down, uh, settle your kids down. I'm just going to pray for us as we start. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for Jesus. And thank you that even though we can't meet together, we can still gather around your word from a distance and see how amazing Jesus is. And so we pray today that you would fill us with joy at just how awesome he is, win our hearts. To him or back to him, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm a little bit of a politics geek. Uh, I'm fine with that. Not everybody has to be. Um, But I've recently been reading a biography of a British Prime Minister and I love the drama of British elections uh, where the person looks like they're going to win. They have to go and see the Queen. You'd love to know what they say to each other. And then they come back and they give a speech on the steps of Downing Street, which is where the Prime Minister will live. And that's seen as a very important moment, not because actually they usually get to do half of what they have said they'll do, but because it sort of sets the tone. The authority has been established by them winning the election. Now, what are they going to do with that authority? How are they going to affect our lives? Well, last week, we saw Jesus establishing his authority um, to people who were questioning it. He told this incredible, powerful story uh, that the world is God's vineyard that he's planted. Uh, It's beautiful, the world that God has made, and it is capable of producing great stuff and people. We are not masters of our own destiny. We are God's tenants in his vineyard. We are capable, unlike anything else God has made, we're capable of producing stuff in the world God has made that shows God's character. Now we don't want to do that. We think our lives belong to us and Jesus in the story is the son of the vineyard owner. He's come to demand our attention. He establishes, he does have the right to tell us what to do. So authority established, what is his speech on the steps? What is the king of this kingdom going to say about the things that matter to us? And in the next bit of the passage we get Jesus comments on three big issues. And they're actually questions like people give to politicians, Through two of them at least, they're questions that are given to try and sort of catch him out. They ask him about tax, they ask him about marriage, And they ask him about lifestyle. So we've seen we have to accept what Jesus says because he is God's son. But what is the world going to be like when he is in charge? And I just want to warn you, the first two of these, the tone is very confrontational. Jesus is sort of telling people off a bit. But the third encounter, Jesus, we see, gives gentle encouragement to people where they really want to know the answers to the questions. So here's the first thing we see in the first bit of the reading. Life, not just tax. And that's verses 13 to 17. Of course, none of us really like paying taxes. And really, when we ask questions about taxes, which are quite a boring issue, sort of geeky tax codey issues, we're actually asking a bigger question where our taxes are used for all sorts of things we might not have spent our own money on. So in a world where Jesus is in charge, what we're getting at here is how do we relate to the government, to the state? Now the Pharisees and the Herodians come to ask Jesus about this. They're two groups who've been after killing Jesus actually since chapter 3 of the book. And they wouldn't have agreed about this question of taxes. Because at this time, the people of Israel, they were ruled by Rome. The Pharisees had one approach to that. They had to live with it. But they tried to keep themselves separate and pure from that sinful, godless world ruled by the Romans. They rejected, really, the existence of that state, but they couldn't get rid of it. So they just tried to keep themselves pure from it. There are still religious groups today who try to withdraw from the world we live in because we would be morally compromised if we lived in it. So they think it's probably not right to pay tax. It makes you impure. It's like the religious person today who says, I don't vote at all because all the parties are anti-God. Or the Christians today who listen to Christian music and watch Christian TV. You know, we put up with this state, but we have to sort of try and say separate from it. And those people tend to be, like the Pharisees, a bit judgmental of people who are not Christians, are very involved in politics, or very judgmental of Christians who don't keep the rules that they've chosen to follow. That's the Pharisees. The Herodians were the collaborators. They worked with the puppet king that Rome had set up, Herod, to try and play the system for whatever they could get. So the Herodians were the Christians who say, well, let's get rid of the offensive bit of bits of the Christian faith, and then the state will think we're great, and they might give us money to do goods works. We'll get government funding if we just talk about Jesus a little bit less, or if we change Christian morality a bit. So two very different groups but both coming to catch him out. And if they ask this question about tax they're trying to catch him out, because they think he'll either be in trouble with the people who hated the Romans by saying we should pay tax, or he'll be in trouble with Rome because he says we shouldn't pay tax. And Jesus does this strange thing. He picks up a coin which has Caesar, the ruler of Rome's image on it. And he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God What is God's? Strange little phrase. He's basically saying the money has Caesar's image on it. So it belongs to him. So where is the image of God imprinted? Well, the Bible says it's on people, it's on us, on every person. So Jesus seems to be saying God delegates some things to belong to government. But don't get distracted by what belongs to government, either by trying to keep pure or trying to collaborate. Start somewhere else. You yourself give your life, which is imprinted with God's image, back to God. Jesus says, you're not going to spear me on a political question. You're not going to co-opt me into your political argument. His call is to you, a person, whoever you are, whatever your age, whatever your ability, To give yourself, which is the thing that bears God's image, back to God. So, people who try and pull Jesus in to support their party political cause are wrong. He won't be bought by that. He's interested in people coming back to know God and a policy about taxes is secondary to that. The mark of the kingdom he is bringing is that people matter and people coming to know God, give themselves back to him, matters most. So if you're more passionate about some political cause than you are about people coming to know God through through Jesus, you're out of step with Jesus himself. More than that though, he is saying that in certain areas that God has given the state authority, it's right to obey the law, to obey the state, to give to the state what rightly belongs to it. It may be you're no fan of the current government, but as a Christian, I do what I can to obey the state, to pay my taxes, even when that's uncomfortable, but... In saying this, I don't think Jesus is recommending just to focus on spiritual things, to be non-political, apolitical. I don't think so, because what he says here has implications for the real world every day. Is it really true that every human life belongs to God and is marked by his image? Has God honoured every human being with the mark of truly belonging to him? you know, it was the original framers of the idea of human rights. They came up with that idea because they believed this, that God puts his image on people. And that will have huge political implications and guide me as I relate to the government. I think it may even mean, while we generally give to Caesar what is Caesar's, there are times that the government needs to be disobeyed because it is so impinging on this uh, uh, human image of God that is in every person. But Christians will work out how to do that, I think, pretty differently. So for example, to take a current example, the Bible teaches that racism of any sort must be wrong because every human being bears God's image. So some people will think at the moment that breaking the law, going against the government to go to a protest is important to do. Some Christians will think that. And other Christians will think, no, the way we should deal with that is to focus on building an inclusive church where people of all races are welcomed and honored. God's image is shown. Just like the issue of taxes, I don't think you get to say, well, Jesus would be at the protest, Or Jesus wouldn't. You get to say, I personally and you personally must give my life to God. And I must live out the truth that everyone's created in God's image. But different times, different places that will look different. Still today, as I said, in the Christian church, there are Pharisees. They're the people who are a bit otherworldly. They say, well, I'm not interested in politics, really. The world just sort of happens to me while I read the Bible and attend church and get on with my life. So I might get angry, say, when the health secretary cuts my pay. But all this fuss about equality, or all this disagreement about trans people's rights, or the way some Christians are really into uh, fighting abortion, I don't get involved in that. It's not my job. I might share the Gospel if I have a chance, but it's unlikely I'll have a chance to share the Gospel because I'm not talking about the things that people who aren't Christians are talking about. See, it's a sort of withdrawal from the world to say, oh, I don't have anything to do with that nasty stuff there. I just don't really think about it. If you belong to God, your life belongs to God, and everyone around you is made in God's image, to just withdraw like a Pharisee is not good enough. Similarly, there are plenty of Herodians around today, people whose social media timeline is full of their views on every cause. But if you look through that timeline, you wouldn't be able to tell they were a Christian. The people who really think we can influence the government to bring God's kingdom now. So they tend to be big up on causes their political bedfellows agree with. So they tend to, you know, ignore abortion because they're interested in racism or ignore racism because they are interested in abortion. And they're never sharing the gospel with their friends because, you know, that would make them unpopular and I would lose my political voice. But no, listen, if you belong to God and everyone around you is creating God's image, that's not good enough. Jesus challenges everyone's politics. He says, listen, the real question is, have you given your life, which belongs to God, created in his image, have you given that back to him? And if you have, if you're a Christian, do you treat everyone and push for a world where everyone is treated as carrying God's image? Lots to think about there. That's Jesus. View on tax, life, not just tax. Here's the seventh, uh, second thing Jesus says. Heaven, not just marriage. That's verses 18 to 27. The next group who come and see Jesus, they are the Sadducees. And they basically believed you should live a good life, but they didn't believe in life after death. There's no resurrection, no heaven, no hell, just this life now to live. They tended to be rich and pretty well to do under the Romans and that's often the way. They couldn't believe in any life after this one because this one for them was so good. Believing in the afterlife is for the poor, crushed and oppressed people. And to prove their view to Jesus, they bring up marriage. They tell this story about this very unlucky woman who had seven husbands in a row die. And so they say to Jesus, at the resurrection, which we don't think is going to happen, whose husband would she be? Now it's a silly story, but it reflects what many people who don't really believe there is a new world coming, a new world God is recreating, many people who don't believe that what they think, therefore, is the most important, what replaces getting ready for that world, is having good romantic relationships. In that culture, it would have been marriage. In our culture, it would be more sort of romance. Marriage is not such a trendy thing nowadays. But if there's no new world coming, there's nothing more important than having a happy relationship now. And that's really what our culture thinks, isn't it? Because there's no new world coming, there's no point going through a difficult relationship now if it's difficult for you. And so the Sadducees are basically saying, as it's so obvious that that is the most important thing, and that doesn't fit with our idea of the resurrection, the resurrection can't be true. Now people find that true today the most overwhelming, powerful, important thing is sort of being in love. And they shape their lives around that. And so the call of Jesus to shape my life around other people being God's image and serving them and getting them ready for the life to come, that seems wrong, doesn't really fit with me. It seems much more natural to form my life around having the happiest relationship I can. Well, Jesus' reply is what do you think I call nowadays A mic drop. Boom. Jesus says, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? That is like, ooh, it stings. These are religious leaders here. And Jesus is like, shut up because you don't know the Bible or anything about God's power. He says two things to their story. The first thing he says is when the dead rise, there won't be any marriage. We find that really weird because our culture's view is that marriage is about companionship or in the past social standing or maybe comfort. And those may be implications, a good marriage may provide those things. But throughout the Bible, marriage is given as a pointer to something else. Marriage is created to point to the final relationship of love and care and commitment that Jesus, the bridegroom, will have for his bride, his people. So, Christians do work at having good marriages. Yes, because they want to be happy, but actually because the stakes are higher than that. Christian marriages are supposed to point to Jesus and the church, but that does mean they're temporary. When Jesus and the church are united forever, marriage as we know it between two individuals it will be no more. I was once talking about this in our church and someone came to talk to me afterwards from a sort of sect that believe that marriages are eternal. So if you get married here, you will be married at the resurrection. That sect also accepts polygamy, being married to more than one person, which you'd have to, wouldn't you, if the Sadducees' story is true. And that means basically it's foolish to want a relationship so much that you end up doing things that are wrong. And it's really bad to have a closed, inward-looking marriage that doesn't point other people to Jesus and the church. It's why it would be really silly for anyone like the Sadducees to say, I'm not going to get ready for the resurrection by giving my life, that's in God's image, to Jesus, You know, because I really want this relationship. It would be foolish to drift through life making decisions about relationships based on our happiness alone. You will end up making bad decisions because your focus is wrong. If the resurrection is true, that means having a relationship is far from the most important thing. And the one that you have is there to point to something greater. Even if you are married now. Your marriage will be superseded by the marriage of Jesus to his people to come. So the dead won't be married or given a marriage, Jesus says. Second thing he says, have you not read the Bible? Again, bit of burn there for religious leaders. Way back in the Old Testament, God spoke to this guy Moses out of a burning bush. And he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now when God said that, those guys he was talking about were dead. Um, Or not because God was still their God. That's what Jesus is saying. Faithful people, Sadducees, who know God, when they are died, they are still alive with God. You're badly mistaken if you think this life is all there is. That is precious truth for the many people, I guess, watching this, who have lost Christians they love to death. They're alive with God. He is their God right now because they're alive with him. And if that's true, then living for the resurrection, the new world God is making, is really important. Christians can be a bit double-minded about this. The truth that there is a resurrection is sort of brought out when someone dies. Oh, isn't it nice? Granny's with God. But then the Sadducees uh, come out day to day Today we all become John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven we could all live for today. But Jesus is God's son with that authority and he came into this world not primarily to tell us something to do but to serve us by dying so that we can be part of this new resurrected world God is making. Everything matters less than that because God is alive, even marriage. That puts our desire for the perfect romance into place and that gives comfort for those who face the reality of death. Jesus says, the dead are not given in marriage and God is the God of the living. That's what it's like in this new kingdom where he is in charge. Here's the third thing that we see. Love, not just religion. Like I said, the tongue so far has been a bit aggressive because the... uh, Conversation Jesus has been having is with people who are trying to catch him out. But this person comes along in verse 28 and he is really impressed by Jesus. He actually wants to know what he thinks. So he says, Jesus, I want to know which command from God do you think is the most important? Interestingly, Jesus can't narrow it down just to one. He says two commands. Love God and love your neighbour. He starts it actually by quoting the Old Testament and saying, the Lord your God is one. There's one God, so there's only one person to worship. If there's lots of gods, you could worship that one a bit, and that one a bit, and that one a bit, and that one a bit, but there isn't. There's only one God, so you should love and worship him. But given what we've just seen, that the image of God is in all the people around you, you can't say you love God and not love your neighbour. So that command is a second, but it's so entwined, I have to say them both. Jesus is deeply committed to his spirituality, which practically outworks in love to the people near us, practical serving love. But also he is not just telling us to try harder to love our neighbour. Rather, there is an order here. You enter a deep relationship of love with the God who made you as a priority and out of that comes love of neighbour. People try skipping one or the other all the time. There are Christians who think it's okay to be spiritual, but actually to be kind to my really annoying, you know, actual next door neighbour. Or to think it's okay not to think about the effect of racism on my black neighbour. Or to not think I should protect the life of my unborn neighbour. It's just not interesting in me. I love God and have a spiritual life. Nope, Jesus says, loving God shows in loving the people who are made in his image. Similarly, there are lots of people who are not Christian who say, Yes, Jesus was all for trying to be nicer and I'm going to try and be a better person. Jesus wasn't against that, but he says far more important than doing that is in priority first is being in relationship with God. This is what matters to Jesus. In this new world where he is in charge, to acknowledge that God his Father is the only God and that everything belongs to him and to love him. And the change that pours out of you is love for other people and shock. Of so far in the story, this teacher of the law agrees. He also clocks this teacher of the law what isn't important. To do those things, this life-transforming relationship, love of God that means you love other people as much as you love and serve yourself. He says that's much more important than religious practice. He gets that. Now, of course, that's so obvious it's difficult to know why we would get that wrong. Why would anybody think that going and giving a burnt offering to God is as important as actually knowing God and loving your neighbour? I guess it's because religious practice is easier. I, you know, sometimes have conversations with people where I'm trying to say gently, I'm not sure you're being very loving to this other person in this situation. And people will say things like, yes, but I come to church every week. Well, good. <laughs> but Jesus says more important to love God and your neighbour. I do it myself. Here's the irony. I realised when I was sitting preparing this sermon that I hadn't spent any time on that day reading the Bible and praying and worshipping and expressing my love and praise for God. But when I realised, the first thing I ended up saying to myself was, yes, but I am writing a sermon. Jesus sees through that. He puts his finger on the mistake we make. We defend ourselves with religion when we know we don't love God or our neighbour. And Jesus says in this kingdom he is building, loving God and that pouring out in love of neighbour, those are the things that matter to him most. Well, I want to talk to you if you are not sure if you're a Christian, or if you're definitely not a Christian, but you're watching this cause you're sort of intrigued. And that this idea that I'm explaining, that Jesus is explaining, that all of this, it's not about doing religious stuff, but actually being in a relationship of love with God that changes your life. That makes sense to you. It sounds right to you like it did to this man. Well, if you're in that, Position, I just want to show you that Jesus does not, unlike the other questioner, sort of slap this person down. Jesus says gently to this man who is showing real interest and beginning to get this, he says, you're not far away from the kingdom of God. You're, you're really close. And if you're at the stage where you get, I'm not being called to some sort of religious thing here. I'm being called to know God and for that to change the way my, my life is, you're really close to what we're talking about here. You're really nearly a fellow traveller with us. If you're tuning in here because you would like a relationship with God that transforms you to be someone who loves your neighbour, rather than just get a little religious moment on a Sunday morning, you're really, really close and we're really glad you've tuned in. You're close but I want to say in the sort of gentlest possible way You're close but not there yet. There is a step further. You can see this is the right way to live, to love God and love your neighbour. But you should also be able to see that you so far, you haven't done it. And neither have I. And what Jesus is about to do in this biography of his life is walk up a hill, carrying a cross and be executed. And he chose that. Because when he died, he was taking on himself all of the guilt and punishment we should have for not loving God and not serving our neighbour. That means this relationship that's on offer, there's nothing stopping you entering it. Nothing at all. Everyone is welcome, no matter where they are in life and what in their past, to enter this life-transforming relationship of love with God. So don't stay just close, thinking that sounds good to me. Take the step and trust Jesus to put you right with God and begin living here. Nothing should stop you, but something might be stopping you. It might be that you're still proud. You're still sure that you're right. And I just think, take a moment to question that. If you can see Jesus is right, that what we really should do is enter this relationship of love with God that changes our lives, you're so close to the kingdom. Why not take his offer, trust him and step over the line? Let's pray. We thank you Lord for this lovely picture of Jesus who has his authority established and then creates a world where um, life and treating others better is more important than taxes where heaven and the new world to come is more important than my relationship status where loving you and that pouring out to others is more important than any religion I might have practiced And we pray for your help to enter and live in that relationship. In Jesus' name.
0: Amen.